Hi, I'm Dave Burse from Additive, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, this podcast is overdue by about two months, um, or maybe more, I'm not sure. But I've got a letter from my dad. Um, dear listener, please excuse David for the lateness of his podcast. He has been very, very busy and left his podcast kit at home. He promises to try harder in the future. Signed, David's dad. So, that's all I want to say about that. That's the apology about the road. I've also had a change of plan for the contents of this podcast. I was hoping to bring you Piers Fox from PSFK, but the file has become corrupted. Bugger. I'm trying to sort it and bring it to you soon, but in the meantime, I've got a fantastic interview with amazing Cindy Gallup. You may have heard Cindy talk before. She's the former chairman of BBH. She travels around the world talking about the future of the advertising industry. And she seems to have the only TED Talk with an adult rating, so we'll hear from her shortly. And after that, we'll have our regular advertising review from my 11-year-old daughter. Now, since we last spoke, or since I last spoke at you, I've put up a website for the podcast where you can find out more about each episode. You can find it at futureofadvertising.info or you can just tap the link on the screen if you're listening on a, an iPhone or an iGadget of some variety. Now, as you may know, I spend a lot of my time teaching agencies about technology and new opportunities and how to come up with more engaging ideas and stuff like that. And as part of that, I've been working very closely with a number of trade organisations. So, if you're in London, Manchester and Edinburgh, I've got some talks on transmedia coming up for the Design Business Association. There's a link on the website to the talks um, on, on the futureofadvertising.info website. Um, if you're not in the UK and you're interested in the transmedia talk, drop me a line. Uh, if there's enough interest, I'll put together a webinar for you. I've also got some talks coming up for the IPA. That's the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising, in case you didn't know that already. And I've got some other really exciting stuff coming up with them in the next couple of months, but I uh, should have more information about that in the next podcast. So, that's enough babbling for now. Let's get on with the podcast. Here's the fascinating Cindy Gallup. I'm sitting with Cindy Gallup in her gorgeous apartment in Chelsea. There's a traffic outside. Um, hello, Cindy. Hi there. Um, could you give me a quick summary of your career about how you get into advertising through your time with BBH to how you got out of advertising? Sure. Um, well, I got into advertising kind of accidentally, like a lot of us. Um, I actually started my career in theatre. I went to Oxford, fell madly in love with theatre. Um, Oxford has a very thriving student drama scene. Um, did everything, acted, directed, stage managed, wrote. Realised I wasn't good enough to be an actress or a director. Um, but one of the things I got sucked into was I used to draw a lot. And uh, so I used to design theatre posters and I ended up selling shows. And I quite enjoyed that. So I became a marketing and publicity officer at the Yvonne Arno Theatre at Guildford and then at the Everman Theatre in Liverpool. Did that for several years, got completely fed up with basically earning chicken feed and working every hour God gave me. 
And um, while I was in Liverpool, I had to give talks on the theatre to promote it. And I talked to a group of women on Merseyside. And after my talk, one of the women came up to me and said, young lady, you could sell a fridge to an Eskimo. <laughs> and I thought, OK, the universe is telling me something. It's time to sell out the establishment and go into advertising. So I joined um, Ted Bates um, as an entry-level account exec trainee back in um, the summer of 1985 in London. And I worked at um, Jane Walter Thompson at Goldgreen's Trot. And then in 1989, I joined BBH in London. And very soon after I joined, I realised that this is a very special agency that I would want to spend quite a bit of time at, although I had no idea then how much time it was actually going to be. So, um, so I actually ended up spending 16 years of my advertising career working for BBH, um, starting off in London, where I ran big global pieces of business, Coca-Cola, Ray-Ban, Polaroid, went out to Singapore in 96 to help start up and run BBH Asia Pacific. And the reason I'm here in New York is because in 98, I got the chance to take up my dream job, which was to come over here and start up BBH New York for them, which began as quite literally me in a room with a phone, starting up an ad agency in the world's toughest advertising marketplace, which was a lively old ride. Mm. Wow. So doing that with BBH, um, you left in 2005. So what have you been doing since then? So um, essentially what happened was... Um, in 2005, I turned 45, and I had my very own personal midlife crisis in the sense that I'd always thought in the couple of years running up to it, 45 is a midlife point. I'd always gone on one's 45th birthday is the moment when you should pause, take stock, reflect and review, where have I been, where am I going, all that good stuff. And so on... Forgive, forgive the New York traffic. Um, on, on February 1, 2005, I duly did that, and that was the point at which I went, oh, my God, you know, I've just worked 16 years for the same advertising agency. Wonderful agency, by the way, love them to death, can't say enough nice things about them, but I thought, I think it's time to do something different. But I hadn't the faintest idea what. So vast amounts of thought and angsting ensued. And eventually I went, if I want to review every possible option open to me for what is effectively the second half of my life, maybe the best thing to do is to put myself on the market very publicly and go, okay guys, here I am, what do you got? And see what comes. So I took a massive leap into the unknown. I resigned as chairman of BBH back in the summer of 2000 2005 without a job to go to and it was the best bloody thing I ever did with my life because I could not be happier doing what I'm doing now and my path to what I'm doing now was very serendipitous as well because when I left um, I thought okay I still don't know what I want to do I was very lucky lots of things came to me I never thought of I thought I'm going to be employment slut I'm going to talk to everybody. I'm going to take every phone call, do every meeting, no preconceived notions. So I went on this fascinating exploratory, which was as good for telling me what I didn't want to do as what I did want to do. So I would, you know, come out of a meeting or an interview, and I'd go, OK, now I know in 50 million years no one did that. And, um, and so a client of my, an ex-client of mine at BBH um, asked me to partner with him on an internet startup um, back at the beginning of 2006. So I spent three months working out of Cambridge in Boston um, on an internet venture, very steep learning curve for me. I ended up walking away from that because the VCs who were backing the venture didn't get my vision of where I wanted to take it. It was all very amicable, I hasten to add. But I just spent three months steeped um, in the world of social media and online social networking. I was then approached um, about the job of CEO of a small world, the online gated community. And in the course of interviewing for that, I had this idea and I went, this is one of those ideas that I have to make happen or die trying. And that's what became my startup if we ran the world. Yeah. So what are the most significant changes during your time in advertising, your 16 years at BBH and your few years before that? What's, what's the biggest changes you've seen that, that, that uh, have transformed or could potentially transform the industry? 
Well, well, quite frankly, um, and this is the change I've seen that um, that very tragically does not transform the industry. I've seen our industry reinforce more and more over time its own biggest tragedy, and that is the fact that. Our industry is jam-packed full of brilliant, creative, intelligent, articulate people who spend all of that brilliance, creativity, intelligence, and articulacy focused 24-7 on their clients' business and never once lift their noses from the grindstone and focus it on themselves. If anybody had ever done that, they would have reinvented the industry model and we'd be in a very different place to where we are today. And I've just seen that, as I say, reinforce itself over time to the extent that right now, nobody in our industry seems capable of reinventing themselves out of a paper bag for the future. And, you know, I have a talk that I give around the world on the future of advertising. Um, and incidentally, when I give it, I get heartily sick of hearing, oh my God, Cindy, those ideas are fantastic. Then no one ever does anything about them. Um, but, but essentially, as part of that talk, I cite my favorite quote of all time, which is Alan Kay, one of the fathers of computer science, who said, in order to predict the future, you have to invent it. I am all about inventing the future. There is no future that happens without any of us that rolls us over in its wake. I go to our industry, decide what you want the future to be and make it happen, because you totally can. And, and the irony of this, too, is that... Um, uh, so, is it okay to kind of go on like this, by the oh, way? Yes, please, okay. yes. So, so what, what I explain to people is that... Um, Years ago, um, back in the Mad Men era, okay, back in the day, clients believed that what we did was magic. And they believed it was magic because they couldn't do it themselves, and they really respected us and were amazed at us for doing it, and they paid us a shed load of money to do it. These days, not only do clients no longer believe that what we do is magic, they believe they can do it themselves. In fact, quite often they believe they can do it a great deal better themselves, and they refuse to pay us anything for it. And in fact, they believe that we should pay them for the privilege of doing it. And by the way, I started out saying that line as a joke. And then last year, the head of Unilever India announced that he expected agencies to work for them for free because of the benefit of having Unilever on their roster. Another company in India charged agencies $10,000 each to pitch for their business. And Thomas Cook, as you know, in the UK, when they ran their review last year, announced that the winning agency would be expected to pay a finder's fee of the equivalent of $1.3 million um, when they actually won the business. So that's no longer a joke. That's for real. So um, the future is about refinding and recreating that magic. And the interesting thing is that actually what what we do has never been more necessary and more applicable. So, you know, the buzzword at the moment is social media. Social media is all the same old fundamental human truths, instincts, attitudes, and behavior just with a whole new methodology. Okay? And we are the masters of human psychology of consumer insight, of, you know, I have a startup, if we ran the world, that is all about turning good intentions into action, one micro-action at a time. And I explain to people that I have the best possible background for a venture designed to do that, because I've spent 26 years working in the business of getting people to do things they originally had no intention of doing. That could not be more useful. So, you know, these days I sit at the interface of creativity and technology. And that is an interface that neither side has even begun to leverage in the way that is possible. And uh, when I talk about either side, I'm talking about creativity in the broadest sense. I'm talking about our industry as a whole. And when I talk about technology, I'm talking about the tech industry and, and digital. And 
And the two sides are enormously suspicious of each other. So the creatives, again, in the broader sense, are really suspicious of the geeks and the nerds because they don't know how to do what they do. And, and the geeks and the nerds go, those arty-farty, airy-fairy types are walking around their head in the clouds. They haven't the faintest idea what the future is, and we are. And actually, the two together make phenomenal things happen. Mm. I see this in my own venture. You know, I'm a completely non-tech person. I'm unashamed about that. I explain to tech is the future is people like me working with people like you. And my two co-founders on If Around the World, you know, Jason Liebrecht, my tech lead, Uni Chase, my head of user experience, you know, the, um, they have tech backgrounds, I don't, but we all talk the same language, we're on the same wavelength, and we make amazing things happen together. And that's what our industry still hasn't gotten to, um, but really needs to, really fast, to reinvent self for the future. Yeah. Um, now, you're mentioning your businesses that you've got there, and you've got, uh, I, I admire you for your TED Talk, which is the only one that I, I've seen that's got uh, a, a sort of advisory warning for the sexual explicit content on it. <laughs> um, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So, um, Make Love Not Porn is my secondary web venture. Um, what it has in common with If Around the World is when I come across something I feel strongly about, I do something about it. So, um, I date younger men. They tend to be men in their 20s. And through dating younger men, I encountered very directly and personally the real ramifications of the creeping ubiquity of hardcore pornography in our culture. So in an era where porn is now more freely and widely available via the internet than ever before, as a result, kids are accessing it at an earlier and earlier age than ever before. There is now an entire generation growing up that believes that what you see in hardcore porn is the way that you have sex. And this is exacerbated by the fact that we live in a culture of hypocrisy and double standards. We all have sex, nobody ever talks about it. So parents are too embarrassed to teach children about sex. Schools and colleges tend to run into issues of political correctness if they try and make up that gap. And so hardcore porn has become, by default, the sex education of today. And that is not a good thing. Mm. So when I realized this, and by the way, this is an issue that would never have crossed my mind if I had not encountered it personally, mm. I decided to do something about it. So I um, built MakeLoveNotPorn.com, which is a website that posts the myths of hardcore porn and it balances them with the reality. The construct is porn world, real world. This is what happens in the porn world, this is what happens in the real world. I launched that at TED back in 2009, two years ago. Um, you know, as, as, as you reference, I took a deliberate decision um, when I launched it with that talk to be very graphic because I knew that unless I was very straightforward that audience would not understand why this was necessary and so as one Twitterer said it was probably the first time that the words come on my face had been heard six times in rapid succession on the TED stage <laughs> um, and you know um, Make Love Not Porn is my secondary venture I, um, I have had no time resources or funds to dedicate to it because if we ran the world it takes them all my time um, but the response has been absolutely extraordinary on zero promotion Make Love Love Not Porn gets 3,000 unique visitors per day. Whenever anybody posts my TED talk, that goes up to 10 to 12,000. Make Love Not Porn is a global proposition, which I've always intended, but I, I have not been able to do anything about it. It gets traffic from 180 countries in very interesting configurations. So a few months ago, the second highest source of traffic after the US was China. I have no idea how or why, especially as it's not in Chinese. Currently, the second highest source of traffic is Turkey. Again, I've got no idea why. The fifth is India. The seventh and eighth are Indian, Indonesia and Malaysia. And I get emails every single day about it from young and old, men and female, all around the world. 
And so I feel a huge personal responsibility now to take it forwards in a way that will make it more far-reaching and effective. I have a specific plan to do that um, that turns into a business venture to be what I believe all businesses of the future should be, which is a business with a higher-order social agenda that's designed to be enormously profitable, do good and make money simultaneously. And I'm looking for um, seed funding at the moment to make that happen, which, by the way, is very hard to find because investors go all funny around the word sex and porn, even with a venture that is designed to be massively, massively lucrative. Because what I plan to do with it is um, the way you combat porn as sex education in a bad way is with porn as sex education in a good way. So um, I plan to take Make Love Not Porn forwards in a new iteration that will redefine porn, explode every single piece of received wisdom about porn and has the potential to be the future of porn. I want to be, with Make Love Not Porn in the 21st century, what Hugh Hefner was with Playboy in the 20th. I want to legitimise sex and porn. Mm. So... One of the things you're mentioning there that I think is a very interesting area you're saying about brands and social responsibility and, and being able to do good and, uh, and run a business at the same time. Um, is that something that you see uh, larger brands being interested in or is it something that that's is, a battle we need to have? Um, that, is, that is the fundamental idea of my startup If We Ran The World. Mm which turns human good intentions and corporate good intentions into action and is a for-profit venture with a business model grounded in the brand and business user proposition. And, in fact, um, I designed... Uh, if We Ran the World is the culmination of all of my own beliefs, values, philosophies, experience and expertise. I am making with it a number of personal bets on the future and what I believe is the future of business, the future of advertising and the future of human nature. So... Um, what If We Ran the World does is it turns values into action. Personal values into action, corporate values into action. Um, I designed, uh, if Facebook is the social graph and Twitter is the interest graph, I designed If We Ran the World to be the action graph. And what If We Ran the World um, does is, uh, so, so uh, coming from our industry, I was particularly aware when I launched it, it's never just what you do, it's the way that you do it. And one of the things I observed was that for a lot of people and brands, the whole idea of doing good is inherently very, very boring. If you go to the homepage of many a non-profit social enterprise, you're met by an instant yawn factor born of worthy but dull syndrome. As in, I know it's very good for me, oh my God, I'm half asleep already. I decided I wanted to make doing good sexy as hell. Mm. Sexy as hell for individuals and very sexy and compelling for businesses. And you make something sexy for business when you show them how it makes the money. I want to explode that paradigm that starts all the way back in the high school cafeteria, where the cool kids' table is the one where the kids are drinking and smoking and having sex behind the bike sheds. And the uncool kids' table is the one with the geeks and the nerds and the boy scouts and the Christians and the do-gooders. I want to show you can be one and the same. In fact, um, you know, I, I also, you know, um, live this through my own personal brand. I'm out to show it's entirely possible to get trashed on Martinez, fuck younger men and help save the world. There is no Madonna <laughs> horse syndrome. So, um, all online social networks currently are underpinned by one fundamental human truth, sex and dating. As in, oh, we're all very seriously legitimately gathered here to talk about, whoa, you're hot, let's date. Okay, that's what's really going on. I want to leverage that dynamic overtly. I would like to make taking action the new social and sexual attractiveness value. Mm. I would like to make, do you act, become the measure of how attractive somebody is, as opposed to how many videos do you post here, you know, to how many friends do you have there. Not too much of a stretch, because we already admire people who get shit done, who make stuff happen. But the way this plays out with If Around the World is, you know, Again, you know, all over the net currently, whenever you post your profile, you can post a photograph of you at your most attractive. 
you can post a carefully crafted mosaic of the books you like and the music you like that gives a certain impression. You can lie, fake username, fake photograph, entirely fake profile. What if in the world you can't lie about anything? Your profile is entirely dynamically generated by your actions. So the more you act, the more it builds up to become multifaceted, aspirational, attractive. So when you look at it, it is you at a glance self-identifying and self-expressing in a very particular way, which is quite literally, you are what you do. You are the sum of your actions. So that adds up to an overall benefit that I call action branding. Personal action branding for individuals and corporate action branding for brands and businesses. Because it works for brands in exactly the same way. You, know, you get some information up front, but otherwise entirely generated by actions. Not PR, not spin, not greenwashing. So I believe action branding is the advertising of the future. Because coming from our industry, I believe the advertising of the future is not about saying, it's about doing. It's not about telling, it's about being. Brands will be judged by their actions just as people are, and so action branding is communication through demonstration. It's walking the talk. So, you know, as I said, we turn values into action. We authenticate brand values by turning them into customized, tailored action programs that are designed to integrate social responsibility and business and to do good and make money simultaneously. And not to do that in the old world order way, which is one, by the way, that most brands and agencies you know, currently current subscribe to, which is we make money here and then we do good by writing checks to causes to clear our conscience, but about making money because you do good, about integrating social responsibility into the way you do business on a day-to-day -day basis that makes the key driver of future growth and profitability, which is why I say to brands, I don't want your corporate social responsibility budget. I want your marketing budget. I'm a hard-headed, pragmatic businesswoman. This is all about doing a load of good and shifting a shed load of product. And this is why, if Randall is a for-profit venture, I'm out to prove my own business model. I want to help drive and create the business of the future. I have to be one myself. I have to prove that I can do good and make money simultaneously in order to convince anybody else. But with the idea of that uh, coming from a marketing point of view and marketing being uh, purely these days, it seems, used as, as communications rather than action, um, does that mean that a lot of brands are going to want to, to talk about what their intentions are, what they want to do rather than acting? Um, to, um, at the moment, absolutely. So if we run the world's very future-forward concept, most um, forward-thinking brands have only gotten as far as co-creation invite consumers to create content and share it. I'm talking about the level beyond that. I'm talking about co-action, which is a whole different ballgame in many very, very interesting ways. Action is transformative. Action makes people feel completely different about themselves, and it has potential to make people feel completely different about brands. And so, um, yep, um, if Random World is born from my belief that there is way too much talking in this world and too little doing, and I'm all about the doing. But as you say, most brands haven't gotten there yet. Mm. Now Going back to your, your future of advertising, and this is, this is one way forward that you're looking at at the moment, um, are there other models, other things that you could see the industry, uh, other opportunities for the industry to move into? Well, um, it, it, it really is um, design your own opportunity. And, and this is something that, um, so, so in my future advertising talk, um, I talk about seven things that I believe the future is about. And one of them is um, the future of advertising is about agency. Note that I don't say agencies, I say agency. And what I mean by that is the future of our industry depends on redesigning how we do what we do um, to actually, interestingly, help ourselves as much as our business. So um, what, um, what, uh, what I mean by that is when I launched If We Ran The World, I said to my team, 
I want to innovate in every aspect of how we design and operate this as a business venture as much as the platform itself. Because I want us to design our own venture around the working lives that we would like to live. So, for example, you know, I said to uh, Jason, my co-founder and tech lead, I want us to design this platform so that we can operate it with a very lean core infrastructure, so that if, as fingers crossed, we grow in scale, um, it, it, actually, we as a company don't have to grow in scale with it, because I no longer want to run that kind of a business. I demand extraordinary talent. I only hire extraordinary. I will therefore work with extraordinary wherever I find it. The rest of my team is not based here in New York, where I am. Jason's in San Diego. Una's in Seattle. We remote work. The Skype video call has transformed my life. Um, therefore, we don't need an office. We don't need to carry those overheads. You know, we obviously bring the team together in person at key nodes of the process. Um, but the rest of the time, I work out of this apartment. They work out of theirs. You know, coffee shops. You know, they're online all the time in my tech team. You know, I'm in, you know, whatever. But, but. I, I designed a different kind of business around, around the way that I want to operate my working life. And, um, and so that's what I advocate agencies. And in fact, a lot of people come to me for help and advice on career crises, you know, midlife um, traumas, um, you know, new businesses, whatever. And what I say to them is, I advise them all to do two things. The first is, identify what it is that you absolutely love doing that you're passionate about, that you absolutely adore. Um, and if you're in a job at the moment, identify, separate out the bits that you adore doing in that job from the bits that you don't, and, and dump, um, dump the shit, you know, and be ruthless about it. And, and incidentally, sometimes the bits you adore about what you do currently are not the obvious bits. You know, it's a very interesting exercise to go through. What do I really enjoy doing? So, so, so A, identify what you absolutely love doing, and then B, identify the conditions under which you love doing it. So you might go, well, I really love doing this. I particularly love it when I only do it between these hours. I love it when I do it working with these sorts of people. I particularly love it working just for these kinds of clients. You know, maybe I particularly love it when I only do it from this location, when I do it from these locations. You know. And then design a venture, design an opportunity, design a job around those two things. Because that way, you will be living the life you want to live and it won't feel like work. And so I say to agencies, do exactly that. Identify what it is that you love doing that you are particularly good at, and then redesign and restructure yourself around the conditions under which you love doing it and you do it particularly well. And ironically, when you do that, it's enormously cost-effective. It's cost-effective, it's time-effective, and it's life-effective. Does that all make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Looking at uh, traditional advertising agencies at the moment, uh, there's a lot of people who will always uh, give the doomsday approach and sort of say that if they don't change, they're fucked. Is, is that the way that uh, oh, yes, you would yeah, see? Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, they absolutely are. Our industry is dying. Mm. I say that categorically. You know, and and the, uh, the, the, the enormous irony is that um, uh, what would affect real change in our industry is not the smaller agencies trying to do it, like the anomalies and you know the taxes and the mothers of this world. What would drive real change would be when one of the behemoths of Madison Avenue blows itself up at the core and reinvents itself, because that is what would get everybody else to do the same thing. And they won't, because when you answer to Wall Street, every minute of every hour of every day of every week of every month, you ain't never going to do that. In any industry sector, and I see this in all the sectors I work with as a marketing consultant these days, you know, um, the issue is that to reinvent and restructure 
yourself for the future, you have to take a short-term financial hit in order to reinvent for exponential future growth and profitability. Very few people are ever brave enough to do that, and that's why they, they, you know, the downward trajectory is, is driving yourself into the ground and dying. And yes, I just respond. Yeah. So, what, where would you see the industry, say, in, in, in five years' time, do you think? Dead. <laughs> dead. Yeah, advertising itself is dead. Yeah. Um, in, in this current shape and in this current form, um, one of my absolute heroes, Clay Shirky, and I'm sure you're familiar with his work, so um, have you read his brilliant blog post, um, The Collapse of Complex Business Models? No, no. Okay, uh, right, right. Go to mm. shirky.com. You know, search it for the collapse of complex business models. Um, it's about six months old, um, I think. Um, it could be. He, he wrote this last year. Um, he wasn't talking about our industry in this, but he might as well have been. Uh, he, he's talking about the TV broadcast industry. But um, the point he makes is that any industry that started out with a very simple, clear, you know, business benefit proposition, over time, um, as it as it grows, um, gets more and more complex. And then eventually, when that is what dominates industry, you get invested in your own complexity. And, 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 and you cannot break yourself out of it. That is, that, that's what's happened to our industry. So, you know, every, every agency, um, pretty much, um, is structured, you know, as, you know as, as, as I say as part of my future advertising presentation, you cannot do new world order marketing from an old world order place. Every agency is structured around a hierarchy that is dead in the water because it no longer applies. You know, um, today, it's all about you know, real-time, responsive, flexible, fast, and every structure in our industry militates against that. So yeah, it's dying. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, if that's the, that's the industry in the future, I'll, I'll round up with a, a final question. Is, uh, where's Cindy Gallup in the future? Well, um, the answer to that is I haven't the faintest idea. <laughs> you know, like I said, I am, I'm making, you know, a number of bets on the future with what I'm doing. And I haven't the faintest idea where they will take me. But um, as I started out saying earlier in this conversation, I'm all about in order to predict the future, you have to invent it. So I am inventing the future that I want to see. I might get it wrong. I might fail. That's absolutely fine. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, people say to me, "Wow, Cindy, you know, you're so brave. You're an entrepreneur. You're starting these businesses." And you know, I, uh, I, I cite um, a great line from Seth Godin's book *Smaller Than You Big*, where he says, "If you work for someone else, you have no job security." So I go, "Whose hands would you rather your future was in?" The hands of a big corporate entity that doesn't give a shit about you at the end of the day, or someone who will always have your own best interests at heart, i.e. yourself. The only person who can ever make things happen for you is you. So I'm all about make it happen for yourself and invent the future that you want to see and live in and be a part of, and that's what I'm doing. And I haven't the faintest idea where that'll take me, but I'll find out. That's wonderful. Thank you, Cindy, very much indeed. Absolute pleasure. I've got to say that Cindy's apartment is absolutely incredible. You should Google it and see what I mean. And she's terribly glamorous and smart, so I was really chuffed that she agreed to see me, so thank you, Cindy. And now for another lady who regularly outsmarts me. It's my 11-year-old daughter. So let's see what she has to say about the industry's offerings this time. Advertising, schmadvertising 
On this episode's advertising review, we're going to be looking at one piece of film, one website, and one integrated campaign. So are you ready to start looking through these just now? Yep. Right. The first one here, we're probably going to have to fast forward through this in the interview, is the Google Art Project, which you can find at googleartproject.com. And it's a website that's got lots and lots of different art galleries on it. And you can look through the art galleries. And uh, do you want to pick one of the galleries just now? Okay. Do you want to explore the museum, maybe? Yep. Oh, cool. Do you recognise any of this? Yeah. Beside the pictures, if there's a plus sign, you can explore the picture. And you can zoom in and out, just like a Google map. Wow, look at that. Keep, keep going. How far can you zoom in? Can you see each individual brush stroke? Oh, yeah. And it's kind of cracking. Zoom in a bit more. My goodness. Wow. You can zoom in even more. Maybe go down one of the cracks. <laughs> yeah. So... There are lots and lots of pictures on here, yep. and lots of galleries, and I believe it's growing as well all the time as more galleries are adding more pictures. So what do you think of the Google Art Project? Well, it is very clever, basically like Google Maps but in buildings. Yeah, it's like Google Street View, isn't it? Yeah. So are you quite impressed with this? Yeah. Do you think you'll come back to this again? Probably. Do you, th- do you think maybe you would show some of your friends? Yes, maybe. So, what's your opinion? The Google Art Project? A thumbs up? Thumbs down? Hmm, thumbs up, definitely. Well, well done, Google. That was a fantastic thing. Right, on to our next piece. Right, this is a film. It's a three min- minute film by Nike uh, and Widenkendi Amsterdam. Um, this is the one that they did for the World Cup, I believe. Right the future. So, what do you think of that film? Very intriguing. Did you, did you like the story to it? Yeah, it was quite cool, even though I'm not that into football, but I think quite enjoyed it. So what would you say for that? Would you give that, even though you're not that into football, would you give that a thumbs up or a thumbs down or a thumbs somewhere in the middle? Well, I, I, I'd say nearly a thumbs up, but not a thumbs in the middle. So kind of just so, so a, in the uh, middle of a thumbs in the middle and a thumbs up. So it's so a thumbs up-ish. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Right. Our final piece that we're going to look at just now, if I can escape out of this, is a campaign for Bing. And this Bing campaign was done by Droga5 in New York. And let's have a look at this. It uses all sorts of different media. And we're going to look at a film that they've done that describes a little bit more about it. I'll be putting the URLs up on the website so you can go along uh, to the web address I'll I'll give you shortly and uh, have a look at these as well. Here we go. This is Bing. So, Jay-Z's decoded book was uh, taken page by page and put into lots of different locations. So one page was the the base for the bottom of a pool table, another page was the inside lining of a leather jacket, another page was printed on plates in a restaurant, and uh, all sorts of amazing stuff. Um, 
What what did you think of that? I, I thought it was quite cool where they put all the pages and everything. So, do you think you would be interested in uh, in getting involved and in actually trying to hunt down some of those pages? Yeah, probably. Um, it would be quite cool, but I feel like you'd be missing out parts as well, but you could just see that on the internet anyway. And you can go out and buy the book, which yeah. is what it was doing as well. Um, so... The way you had to find it was using the search engine, Bing, instead of what you would usually use, which would be... Google. Exactly. So um, <laughs> everyone else would normally search on Google. Um, do you think that kind of thing might encourage you to, to use Bing after the campaign? Well, maybe, but I think I'll stick to Google. All right. So for what they did there, by taking the pages of the book and putting them all round about the world and letting people find them, do you give that idea a thumbs up, a thumbs down, or a thumbs someplace in the middle? Probably in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. All right. Well, there we go. That's the roundup from today's um, advertising review. The thing there was that every single one of these was actually a gold award winner in the Cannes Advertising Festival. So it wasn't just that they were randomly picked. And it was to see how you would judge the work that the advertising community was considering to be the best work. So generally, thumbs up. There certainly wasn't any thumbs down there. And the only thing was a somewhere in the middle for Bing. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Say goodbye. Bye. If you've got anything you'd like my daughter to review, just drop me a line. She'll be honest, which isn't always a good thing. So, that's us at the end of the podcast. Thank you for keeping me company all the way through. You won't need to wait as long for the next episode, I I promise you. And I've got some amazing people lined up to have a microphone stuck in their face. In fact, just this morning I was on the phone to one of my industry heroes who's got some pretty radical stuff to talk about, and we'll be speaking to him shortly. But for now, I'll let you get on with sorting out your desk tidy, googling yourself, and checking Facebook. Ta-ta for now. still there. The podcast is over, you know. Well, listen, seeing as I've got your attention again, I've got a little task for you. I was thinking of maybe adding some amusing industry stories into the podcast, but I don't really have very many. So I was wondering if you could email me your own stories. It might be a colleague's wonderful display of ignorance, or a client's crazy request, or the antics of some people in a film shoot. I've got one of those that involves lemonade, gin, a randy director and a lesbian biker bar, but I'll maybe divulge that if uh, any of you share your own stories. So, go on, drop me a line. The address is podcast at getadditive.com. Okay, run along now. Bye.